Well, we want to uh, continue our study of the book of Acts this morning, and as we come to Acts chapter 9, it's really a pivotal moment in the history of uh, the early church, uh, because this is the account of Saul meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus and uh, getting saved. So, you know, I got to thinking about grace, because this is the quintessential picture of grace. I mean, we all need grace. Obviously, the fact that uh, Jesus Christ would give his life for a sinner such as I, that's grace. But boy, uh, Saul was, in his own words, chief of sinners. And so what an incredible picture of grace uh, this is. And uh, I got to thinking about that, and I, I thought how people like to measure things. That's why I'm titling this Grace Immeasurable. But we all do it. It's human nature. We measure, you know, distances. As I've been working on our plans for my conference in Wisconsin, I've been using uh, Google Maps and trying to figure out the best route and where to get hotels, how far is it from point A to B, what's the quickest route. We like to measure things. Uh, you know, how much snow did we get? Uh, by the way, it snowed yesterday where we live. Uh, hard to believe. Uh, how close was the race? Uh, you know, what's the score of the game? Who's taller? Who's faster? Who's smarter? Put your hand down, Gary. I was not asking for, you know. That was a rhetorical question, Gary. Uh, how high is that mountain? Who has a bigger house or car? Who has more money? How long was that sermon? No, we don't, we don't want to ask that one. You know, most of the time, this kind of measuring is pretty innocuous. But when it comes to our eternal destiny, measuring sticks often get in the way. Because of our propensity to measure, we tend to view heaven and hell through the lens of some arbitrary standard. <clears throat> we get out our tape measures and we start sizing things up. You know, have I done enough? I don't know. Let me measure. Have I done enough? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, am I good enough? Well, let's see. Let's see. I don't know if I should start down here or, you know, am, am I good enough? Um, uh, you know, ha, 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 is there more I can do? How much is enough? I don't know. One foot? Two foot? How much is enough? See, the problem is heaven is not about measuring up. It's about grace. It's about grace. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, it's about grace, and grace, by definition, has no limits. It is immeasurable. Now, what do we mean when we say grace? Unfortunately, uh, Satan's attack on words has really had its crosshairs set right on this word grace for many years throughout church history so that people think, you know, grace is something you get when a priest says something or does something over you or sprinkles something on you. Or grace is something you say before a meal. Or grace is the description of that, you know, ice skater doing a four routine. So grace has all kinds of definitions, but of course we need to use Bible words with Bible definitions, and in the Bible, grace means unmerited favor or blessing. 
It's used 155 times in the New Testament, almost always translated grace in most English translations, sometimes favor, but it's unmerited favor or blessing. So let's use that as our definition as we go through this story of Saul this morning. Undeserved blessing. Now it's easiest to understand grace conceptually when you think of it in comparison to its counterparts, justice and mercy. So justice is getting what you deserve. Right? When we feel a sense of injustice, it's because we felt like we were slighted. We were shorted, right? We didn't get something that we felt we deserved. Mercy is the withholding of punishment. So mercy is not getting punishment that you deserve. But grace is neither justice nor mercy. It is getting blessing that you don't deserve. Getting blessing you don't deserve. Grace is undeserved blessing. So what do we mean when we say grace is immeasurable? It's immeasurable because it can never be too undeserved. In fact, the more undeserved grace is, the more powerful it becomes. So people will sometimes tell me, you know, I don't deserve grace. And I go, ding, 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 you're right. <laughs> you, if you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. That's the very definition of grace. And I think immeasurable is the perfect English word to describe the nature of God's grace. If you, if you look it up, you find incapable of being measured, limitless. I love that word limitless because when it comes to salvation, there are no limits. If the story of Saul, who later became Paul, teaches us anything, it's that grace has no limits. Anyone can be saved regardless of how they may or may not measure up. That's because God's power to save is immeasurable. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1. What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power. So, as we're going to talk about in a moment, let us never forget there is one condition. There is one condition for salvation. It doesn't happen passively. You don't just walk along and all of a sudden you get zapped and now you're going to heaven. There's one condition that the Bible lists more than 160 times as a condition for eternal life. And that's faith. Notice, what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? Believe is just the mechanism of receiving the gift. Like all gifts, the gift of grace must be received. It's free. If it wasn't free, it wouldn't be a gift. Uh, no, no strings attached. No cost. You don't get salvation because you promise to do something or pledge to do something or sign on the dotted line. As you've heard me say, salvation is not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. But when you think about the limitless nature of it, it really is an incredible uh, witness to God's exceeding greatness and power. Uh, Romans, Paul tells us, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The New King James, which is what I normally teach from, says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But the idea there behind abounds sometimes can get clouded. It basically just means the more you sin, the more grace there is. In other words, you can't out-sin God's grace. Sin can never go so far that God's grace can't reach it. Can never get so lost in sin that grace can never find you. We are 
justified freely by His grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So the reason our justification, let's make sure we understand that term, justification just means being declared righteous. So we're all sold under sin in unrighteousness in our position before a holy God. What we need is perfect righteousness so that we can have that relationship with God restored. And the way we get that is by Christ giving it to us. That's what we mean by eternal life, eternal salvation, to be declared righteous before a holy God. So that declaration of righteousness is given to us freely by grace because there's no other way to get it. The price is so high, the demands of sin are so high and so steep that no one can ever meet them. And that's why we need grace. Nothing is too high or too steep for grace. You know, what separates Christianity, biblical Christianity at least, from every other religion in the world is Christianity is the only religion that admits, you know what, we can't get it. Can't do it. There's nothing like every other religion. You have this list of do's. This, these, follow these steps to nirvana. Get these seven steps to you know, paradise, whatever it is. If you just work harder, try harder, do more, you'll get there. But we believe God's Word teaches you're hopeless and utterly helpless. There's absolutely nothing we can do to overcome our sin problem. It's got to be a gift. And that's where God stepped in. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2, 7, in the, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so that's why grace is immeasurable. And as we continue our journey through the book of Acts and our look at the church in the early days of Christianity, we come to this turning point in Luke's narrative, the conversion of Saul. So the, think about this. The very guy who proclaimed emphatically that our eternal destiny is not based upon works, but by grace. And the one that wrote all the verses we just looked at was Paul. And Paul knew a thing or two about how immeasurable grace is. So let's take a look at uh, the story of Saul. And I just want to read the first nine verses. We'll continue with chapter 9 next time, not next week as I'll be traveling, but the following Sunday. But let's just read, you listen as I read the first nine verses. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in the Hebrew culture, the context, this concept of repeating a name showed deep emotion. We see this a lot. Jesus cried, for example, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, David cried, Absalom, Absalom. It's just a, an indication of the, the power of the moment and the emotion of the moment. And so Saul said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this next section, some of the more modern translations leave out. I believe the best textual evidence is that they were part of the original text. 
So if you're following along in something other than the New King James, you might not have this next couple of sentences, but I believe they're part of God's inspired word. Again, he said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You've heard that saying? It comes right from the Bible, from Jesus. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now we're going to leave you hanging there. Next time we'll come back to his interaction with Ananias, whom the Lord used in this conversion experience. But if the story of Saul teaches us anything, it's that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. If Saul can be saved, anyone can be saved. If God's grace can reach Saul, this murderous, anti-Christian, anti-church, Christ-hating you know, tyrant, it can reach anybody. If the story of Saul teaches us anything, it's that you're never too bad to be saved. You're never too far from grace. You're never too far gone. You're never too hopeless, never too estranged, never too evil, never too sinful, never too broken or hurt or damaged or ruined. You're never too far beyond redemption. Grace abounds. And it is immeasurable. So what I'd like us to do is look at three things that can never overpower grace as we examine in closer detail this uh, story of Saul. First of all, your past can never overpower grace. Saul's past was well known. He was a Christ-hating Christian killer. That's who he was. Look at, go back to chapter 8, which we looked at previously. Luke tells us, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You know, over the last couple of years, the world has witnessed uh, more directly what has been happening since the early days of the church, and that is the intense persecution of Christians. And we've seen in, in places like New Zealand and Australia, Canada, even in some rare cases in America, law enforcement officers dragging people off to be arrested, for, for example, singing praises out in the open parking lot, you know, in one case. But I wonder as we watch that and just really got bothered by it, as we should, how many of us stopped to think about the person doing the dragging? How many of us in that moment thought grace could reach that person? Not suggesting that necessarily they were all unbelievers, because in some cases they might have just been Christian law enforcement officers doing their job. You know, I don't know. Hopefully you'd have the, you know, uh, ability to stand firm in a situation like that and say, no, I'm not going to violate this person's constitutional rights. But my point is, when we see people doing the persecuting, do we stop to think about grace can reach them? Paul would later say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. 
See, your past can never overpower grace because all things become new spiritually in that instant. The moment faith meets the gospel, instantly you are born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, that, hey, if, if you want to get into the kingdom, you, you've got to have a new birth. You've got to be born from above. Nicodemus in John 3 was confused because he never heard of the second birth. He only heard of physical birth. And so he said, what am I supposed to do, go back into my mother's womb? Jesus said, no, no, I'm talking about the heavenly birth. You've been born once, dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you want to get into heaven, you've got to have a second birth where you trust in Christ and become a new creation, become a child of God, as we talked about in the 9 o'clock hour. Israel, the nation, God was speaking to them through the prophet Isaiah. And he said, don't remember the former things. Now, how many times was that important for the nation of Israel, whose really shady history was periods of great glory and periods of great decline? But God is in the business of looking forward, not backward, personally and nationally. And at the end of the age, when we see time shall be no more, we see Revelation 21.5, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. See, God's not in the business of scrutinizing your past. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, as has been said many times. And so God's in the business of making things new. That's why He stands willing to give you the free gift of eternal life if you'll simply receive it by faith. I grew up when contemporary Christian music was just getting started in the 70s and early 80s, and one of the groups that, that uh, was popular back in the day was uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Notwithstanding some of their doctrinal beliefs, they put it well when they said, let me introduce you to a friend called Grace. doesn't care about your past or your many mistakes. He'll cover your sins in a warm embrace. Let me introduce you to a friend a friend called grace. Your past can never overpower grace. But your present can never overpower grace either. Your present is no match for grace. Luke tells us that the very day Saul met Jesus, that present day he was still breathing out threats and murder against Christians. The verse we read a moment ago. Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So if we put this in historical context, ever since Stephen's martyrdom, which we, Luke recounted in chapter 7, Saul, starting out in chapter 8, which we looked at a second ago, had been persecuting Jews that had become Christians by believing in Jesus. So the Jewish high priest's Roman overseers to whom he was accountable gave the high priest authority to extradite Jews who were strictly religious offenders and had fled outside the Jewish Sanhedrin's jurisdiction. And that's who Saul was hunting down. He obtained letters from Caiaphas giving him power to arrest Jesus' disciples from Palestine who had fled to Damascus because of the persecution they were facing in Jerusalem. We see that all the time, historically. You flee an area because of persecution. You go to an area that's a safe haven. Even Joseph and Mary did that in the first, in the early uh, days of Christ's birth, when Herod was murdering babies. And so what did they do? They fled to Egypt, right? So Saul was going outside of the realm of 
the Jewish uh, jurisdiction the, and getting permission to do so and dragging them back into Jerusalem. He probably believed he was following in the line of other great Jewish zealots uh, who had purged these idolaters, as they labeled them, from Israel. People like Moses or Phinehas or Matthias. When we think about grace, we recognize our present can never overpower grace because the Bible says whoever, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And, you know, the Greek word whoever means whoever. <laughs> uh, whoever means anyone. There are no preconditions for salvation. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, you can be saved. Paul, the one we're talking about this morning, would later say, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Seems like Paul, just as you read his writings, and of course we have 13 letters of his in the inspired New Testament, possibly 14 if he wrote Hebrews, which is an anonymous letter, but I tend to lean that way, but for sure 13. And as you read it, you, you seem to get this sense that even though Paul knew theologically that he had been forgiven, he was, it was hard for him to let go because he makes statements like this a lot, you know of whom I am chief. I mean, whenever he recounts his testimonies, he's, he's understandably, I guess, unkind to himself. But he did understand that his past was behind him. Think about Philippians 3. Forgetting what is behind, pressing toward what is ahead. But here he says, the same Jesus whom he was dragging people out of their homes because they followed him and believed in him, he now recognizes came into the world to save sinners. Christ didn't come to save perfect people or even good people or even people who are bad but are trying real hard. He came to save sinners, plain and simple. And your present can never overpower grace. But here's the rest of the story. The, your future can never overpower God's grace. God's grace is greater than our future. You know, when you trusted in Jesus, if you're here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and I hope you have, because that's the only means of forgiveness, but if you've received the free gift by faith, when you trusted in Him, from that moment, from that perspective, how many of your sins did Jesus Christ's death pay for? All of them. Now, how many of those sins occurred on this side of the cross all of them in other words from the moment in time speaking linearly from from man's perspective when jesus christ the lamb of god took away the sins of the world how many of our sins were yet future every one of them and yet so many people come to faith in christ and ex receive the forgiveness that he provides and yet think that somehow something they can do later can undo what he's done at the cross. But nothing could be further from the truth. Your future is secure the moment you trust in Christ. We see this exemplified through Paul because at the time, again, 
that he was met Jesus, he was planning in the future to continue his murderous ways. As we said, he wanted to bring to go out and bring more people uh, to the high priest. But your future can never overpower God's grace. You know, whatever you're planning or whatever you plan to do, think about doing, want to do, or actually do do, nothing can overpower God's grace. See, we are secure. Paul, in fact, would say, even if we are faithless, he said this the, the, just perhaps hours before he was uh, persecuted, you know, mar martyred. His last epistle, 67 A.D., some scholars think, you know, they, they may have come and taken him from the prison to be hung within days of this. But certainly near the end of his life. And he said, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. And the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you became a child of God. Your spiritual DNA changed. <clears throat> and you can no more undo that spiritual DNA than you can undo your physical DNA. Even though the CDC is trying to do that. <laughs> and the Luciferian elite. Uh, but no, you can't undo it. You know, you could disown your family. You could say, I disown my family. I don't have anything else to do with them. I'm no longer a Hickson. A simple DNA test would prove you wrong. <laughs> and no matter what we do, even though in the life of a believer, sin is serious, it has steep consequences, there's a whole list of things the Bible talks about that should serve as deterrence against living in the flesh and not in our spirit that we have received. Loss of blessing, practical consequences, even swift physical death, First John tells us. There's sin that leads to death. You know, you sin long enough, you know, sin comes to, you know, sin, sin leads to death, James tells us, right? So sin is not, you know, something to trifle with. Don't misunderstand me. But when it comes to our position in Christ, Christ doesn't give us eternal life on the condition that we keep on living right or never commit any big sins. That would make it a contract. <clears throat> That's not grace. It's a free gift. <clears throat> so nothing in the future, even lack of faith, can cause us to lose our salvation. Jesus didn't say, if you believe on me and keep on believing until you die, you're saved. Because <laughs> then we could never know whether we're going to heaven until after we die. You know, and, and frankly, some theologians uh, inaccurately teach this. Calvinists. Even the late R.C. Sproul said, I can only be 99% sure I'm going to heaven. Because according to his, his wrong theology, in my opinion... He, he said that on his deathbed he might stop believing, which in his view would prove he wasn't saved. Not according to my Bible. If we are faithless, the word faithless there is ah, a negative, like uh, uh, atheist means no God. This is apistis, no faith. When you have absolutely no faith. And, and the Bible tells the story of people who've turned their back on God. But they're in heaven today. John the Baptist died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus was even the Son of God. He's in heaven today. Saul's another example, the Old Testament Saul. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, even if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Our future can't undo what Christ did for you in that moment when faith met the gospel. In that instantaneous, punctiliar moment in time, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. I don't, sometimes I get ahead of myself, but I don't think I have this verse on the screen. But in John uh, chapter 8, Listen to the words of Jesus himself. John 8, or sorry, John 5. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, present tense, 
and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Never face judgment. Now, if he were to then come back later and say, oh, you forgot to read the fine print, I meant to say, unless you deny me, or unless you really fall away and start committing habitual sins, or, you know, look, all sin is habitual. How many of you are still, how many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. If you've trusted in Christ, good. How many of you still sin? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you. Good. Um, how many of you still commit the same sins today that you did the day after you got saved? Let's be honest. We're struggling with it. Sometimes the spiritual walk is three steps forward, two steps back. We we're to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh, Galatians 5. We're to put on the new man, not the old man, Ephesians. So it's a journey. So the minute we start pointing to others and saying that their habitual sins somehow cast them into hell, either because they never really were saved or they lost it, either one's the same place, then we're you know, evidencing the same you know, thing that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about in the Sermon on the Mount, about the log and the speck. So what you're basically saying is, that person's going to hell because they're struggling with drugs or sexual sins or whatever it is. But I'm okay because my temper or my lust or my discontentment or these other sins listed in the same passages in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, well, they're not as visible. So I, I'm okay. No, no. No, no sins in the future can undo what grace has done. Now, there are serious consequences for sin in the life of a believer. You know, it's a difference between being in the family of God and being out of fellowship with God. And God disciplines those whom He loves. And there are practical consequences. But we need to recognize that grace, the very reason it's immeasurable, is because neither our past, our present, or our future can change it. Your future can never overpower grace. Uh, your plans, too, cannot thwart God's grace. Uh, we met a lady one time uh, at a conference we were doing in D.C. Uh, who came up to our booth, and uh, she had been at this particular uh, church, a large church, for uh, many years, as I recall, raised her family there. But she told us, we, we always put gospel tracts out on our tables and encourage people to take them and give them out. And she was looking at one, and she said, Man, I... I'm a big believer in gospel tracts. Let me tell you my story. And she explained how years ago, before she, I believe it was before she was married and had kids, uh, she was at a very low point in her life, very depressed, and decided to take her life. And she got on the subway and sat down and was waiting for the right time to just get off that subway and then was going to jump in the tracks and, and take her own life. And um, as she was trying to get up the nerve to do it, she would get up and then she'd walk around and then she'd sit down again one Time she sat down and there was a gospel track on the seat next to her. She picked it up, read it, placed her faith in Jesus Christ, and became a godly, God-fearing lady for the next 20 years. Now, when that day started, her future plans were one thing, but God's grace was another. Your future can never overpower God's grace. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Have you believed in him? Rest in that grace. Rest in his assurance. Peter put it this way. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, Peter knew a thing or two about grace too. 
We see a lot of times when he stumbled in the record in the book of Acts. And yet he reminds us that we are kept by the power of God through faith. Kept by the power of God. We don't have to hang on to God. He's hanging on to us. Perhaps that's what was in Paul's mind as he wrote those beautiful words of security in Romans 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So how do you measure up? I think the best thing to do is to put aside our measuring tapes and quit trying to measure up. First of all, if you don't know the Lord, you'll never measure up. You just need to come empty-handed to the cross and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, and I'm placing my faith in you today as the only one who can forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. If you already know the Lord, you need to also resist that urge to pull out those tape measures and say, am I doing enough? Am I really saved? You know, Just believe the words of Jesus. I mean, he either meant it or he didn't when he said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, John 10, 28. I mean, do you believe him? <laughs> Or was he just kidding? Jesus didn't give you the potential for eternal life or the prospect of eternal life or the possibility of eternal life. He gave you eternal life. See, contrary to what the impression a lot of people have, we don't get eternal life when we die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. It just so happens that the first so many years of it are lived on this old earth, bound under sin, struggling between the flesh and the spirit. But our home in heaven is secure. That's why Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. Well, why would he say that if that citizenship could be revoked? <laughs> and it cannot. So how do you measure up? <clears throat> Here's uh, the takeaway. Set aside those uh, tape measures. And uh, first of all, receive God's grace. A moment ago when I asked for a show of hands, just about everybody raised their hand. Uh, and those that didn't probably just are don't like to raise your hands. I get it. Um, but right now, without a show of hands, I just want you to examine your own heart and make sure there's been a time in your life when you explicitly recall. You may not know the date or the hour. I was six years old. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the exact date, but I certainly remember the moment when as a, a, a child I had heard the gospel, recognized I was a sinner on the road to hell and needed a Savior. And in simple childlike faith, which is the only kind of faith that saves, by the way, it's the reason it's so much harder for adults to get saved, because we like to figure things out. The older we get, the less trusting we become. A child says, oh, i got to trust in Jesus who died for me and paid my penalty for sins, and then he'll give me eternal life? I'll trust in him. <laughs> but adults are a little more skeptical. But Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So think about, has there been a time when you've trusted in Christ and him alone for salvation? If you haven't, do that today. If you have, then rest in that grace rest in that grace stop you know paul wrote the book of galatians the first letter he wrote so historically he gets saved which we just read about spends 14 years restudying the scriptures now that he has the holy spirit and understands what jesus is all about and then uh, then he begins his first missionary journey in 48 a.d so paul got saved in 35 a.d two years into the church age then 48 49 he starts his first missionary journey to the region of southern Galatia. <clears throat> and right after that, he writes the book of Galatians. In that book, the first thing he addresses, which who would know better than him, is the tendency on the part of believers who understand they were saved by grace through faith to revert back 
to sanctification by works, trying to live their Christian life by works. And he said, how, you know, how are you who've been made perfect in the spirit trying to be made perfect in the flesh? Something like that I'm paraphrasing. But that's the gist of one of his arguments in Galatians. So rest in God's grace. Let the Spirit of God lead. Obviously, confess those times when you fall short of what God's divine design is for you. Uh, grow in the faith. Grow mature. But don't. T life is too precious to spend one minute of it doubting the words of the Son of God Himself, who said, if you believe in me, I give you eternal life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for uh, the simpleness of grace, the profoundness of grace, and yet, Lord, we confess how often we really mess it up. We just don't understand it. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we see it witnessed uh, in high definition here through the, the story of Saul, that it would awaken us to the beauty and the glory and the amazing nature of your grace, and that we would leave this place today uh, prone to live out our new life in you out of gratitude for that grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat>